So this morning is uh, May 22nd, 2011. I would like to point out that our Jewish year is 5,771. That will become important as we move on. Uh, would like to thank you, Keith Phillips. Uh, you gave us the title for our message today. Uh, I was laying tiled and had not watched news in a while. And uh, while I was fixing a grout line, uh, I got a chance to check my voicemail from the day before. And Keith asked if we were going to throw a post-apocalypse party. And, uh, so that's our message title this morning, the post-apocalypse party. I'd like to mention, because it's all over the news, if you haven't been asked about it, you will be asked about it uh, by lost people that you're witnessing to. A gentleman who has a program called Family Radio, uh, based in California with 66 stations and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of listeners, uh, is dealing with the repercussions of wrong expectations this morning. Uh, I would like to start off by telling you I have no criticism for this man personally. I don't know enough about him. But I know he is 89 years old, been married to one woman all of his life, drives a 1993 Toyota Camry, lives in a house that has not been remodeled since the 70s, and uh, does not have a lavish lifestyle. So I don't think that he has done the things that he's done out of a desire for money. I don't think that he's done the things that he's done out of some uh, willful intent to mislead people. In fact, this is the second time he has made a prediction of a rapture to occur, and it did not occur. Uh, I'd like to tell you this is because his expectations are wrong all the way around. Uh, I'm going to show you some things in the Word today. Start there. We'll move to daily living type things that I hope you'll get something from. But I just want to tell you that during worship, uh, this kind of dovetails together for me. Because you can see right now on a national level what happens when a man feels called to do something that is good. That may even be right. But it was not what God had him to do. When we begin to take steps in our own hands, when we decide what we should and shouldn't do, and it is not the Lord leading us anymore, it's idolatrous. And the results of that are hurt and broken lives. Now, it's a good thing to be a pastor, but if God didn't call you a pastor, to be a pastor and you set your heart on it your entire life, you're going to hurt the people around you trying to get there. If he called you to be a pastor, but that does not start until your 40th birthday for no other reason than he chose that, and you spend the first 20 years of your life trying to get there, you will hurt people around you. This You could substitute any word here other than pastor, and it all works the same way. We are supposed to be the people of God being led by the Spirit every day of our life. Daily bread, daily light, daily word every day of our life, and you can see it is easy to get misdirected along the way. It's easy to think that a good idea has become a God idea. Having said that, please turn to Matthew 6. Look for uh, maybe verse 9, 10, something like that. I'm working from memory here so you can, can check me for accuracy. When the disciples asked Jesus how they should pray... He said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Other than my King James, could I do alright with that? Okay. Your kingdom is in heaven, Lord, but we're asking that your will, your dominion, your reign would be on earth the same way that it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. This is a Jewish expectation. Jesus taught as a first century rabbi. He taught within the framework of Judaism. And the people of that time who were right thinking, and not all of them were any more than they are now, were waiting for something. And it was not to catch a certain drift of wind and fly away. They were waiting for the kingdom of God to be established. So when Jesus taught people to pray, He began with praying about the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. Otherwise, He would have began this very precious prayer that people recite and put on jewelry and hang on their walls with, Our Father who art in heaven, rapture us away. But He didn't do it. And He didn't do it for a reason. This was nowhere in the Jewish thought system. Let's start with what is in the Jewish thought system. Turn with me to Daniel. You're going to be in the second chapter. I want to talk to you about a literal kingdom that is going to envelop the earth. When we get this expectation right, when we start to get this right, then you will not be looking at the newspaper headline every day and checking the latest Bible prophecy teacher and going, oh wait, is it here? Did I miss it? Is it tomorrow? This will not be a part of your life. Instead, what you will be doing is every day knowing that our God is working towards a goal, a parousia, a culmination of the ages, and that certain very specific signs will make it impossible for somebody who is filled with God's Spirit and communing with Him to miss. But it will surprise everyone who is not communing with Him daily. It is the lost who are surprised like the thief in the night. The believers are watching, waiting, looking, and every eye will see this. Okay? I, I won't have time to teach on this entire thing today. I just want to point to some things and then get into a message that I think will help you at work tomorrow and then at home when you come home. But I think it's important enough that we don't derive our biblical views based on people's bumper stickers on their cars. Are you in the second chapter of Daniel? Yes. Many of you are familiar with this. If you have a good Bible, there might be a picture of a statue there. It might have a head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. It might even have kingdom names associated with it. Look at the 44th verse of the second chapter. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Really? Did, did God's kingdom originate at the same time as the kingdoms of the earth? You know, where, where God is dwelling now, in the highest heaven, where Jesus is seated on the throne at the right hand, did that kingdom have a definite starting point that coincided with the Babylonian kingdom? Probably not. So we are not speaking about a kingdom that is somewhere else and can't be seen. He is prophesying to people on the earth looking for a kingdom to be set up on the earth like every other kingdom they had ever seen. Watch this expectation as it moves forward. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. 
It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. If you continue to read the book of Daniel in the 7th chapter, in the ninth chapter, this is a reoccurring theme. There are four beasts. There are uh, a statue with four segments. There is a, a tree that represents a kingdom. We see the same story over and over and over. And it basically goes that Babylon would be a worldwide empire, the world of their day. And that the king was getting that message. He would be the first of the Gentile kings to rule over the known world of their time. And after Babylon would come Medo-Persia, and we would see Darius and Xerxes, and those guys do the very same thing. And after Darius and Xerxes, the Greek kingdom, with Alexander and his four generals, would rule over the earth. Those four generals would break up the earth into their various portions. And a Roman Empire would rise, a fourth and terrible kingdom. It would be during the time of those kings that the kingdom of God would begin on earth, just like those kingdoms. Look with me in Daniel 7 so you don't think I'm lying to you. Look, I know that you can turn to a Bible dictionary. You can read four or five uh, descriptions of eschatological views. They'll say this one is pre, this one is mid, this one is post, this one is preterist, this one is amillennialist. And it's like choosing brands of cereal. The Bible was not meant to be this way. And with each one there is a list of pros and a list of cons and strict adherence to each that fight and argue about it. My supposition is that whatever God is showing you in the Word should be consistent throughout the Word. It should never be based on a single verse. And dear God, not based on a linguistics argument. The culture that God designed for us to bring us the Bible had certain views. Words had certain meanings. And it was obvious to the average person. Even a common fisherman. And we'll see that here in a minute. In Daniel 7, pick up with me in the 13th verse. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all of this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. There is no hint that this kingdom is somewhere other than this planet. The four beasts are four kingdoms that rose from the earth and they give way to a kingdom on the earth. In fact, the statue that he saw earlier had a rock cut out of a mountain on the earth. 
The rock fell on the feet of the statue and it filled the whole earth. Never were we speaking about some off-world experience. Never at any time did the reader of this go, oh, we're obviously talking about some other dimension. Instead, they saw a God who was in heaven, whose reign had been temporarily interrupted on the planet, and He would fix His reign on the planet with a king and a kingdom on the planet. In case you think that I have maybe cherry-picked this verse, please keep reading. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all of the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before the three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the... Hmm. You take out a Bible dictionary sometime. Look up that Hebrew word. There is no justification in the language that this was written in to make that a specific people group excluding others. In fact, it defines a behavior of people. Those who have been set apart for God's work. Those who have been sanctified. In other words, we cannot give everything that we do not like to one ethnic group. Who don't we like today? We're, we're mad at Pakistan? They, they, they harbored someone? Well, then this must be speaking about Pakistan. Who, who else are we mad at? Maybe we gave too much aid to a little country in the Middle East, so this must be speaking about them. Why do we want to be associated as the people of God for good things, but not associated as the people of God with anything that might be difficult? Could there be something selfish in that kind of interpretation? The saints of God are who the saints of God have always been. Before there was a nation of Israel, Noah was a saint of God. Before there was a Noahic flood, Enoch was a saint of God. After the formation of the nation of Israel, Ruth became a saint of God. A saint of the living God is anyone who is sanctified by Him, set apart for Him. So who is waging war against the saints and defeating them? Apparently... Somebody who rises out of this fourth kingdom. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. You need to know something, saints. There is a time period that will be trouble unequal from the beginning of the planet till now. And the saints of God resist the enemy. And the king, the Ancient of Days, shows up and pronounces judgment in their favor and gives them a kingdom that never perishes. None of the readers of this would have ever gone, Oh, this obviously means that like Star Trek, we will be beamed up somewhere. This obviously means we will be on another planet called heaven somewhere. No one would have thought anything like that. They would be expecting a king and a kingdom that was sent from God. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear upon the earth. It will be different from all of the other kingdoms. Look at verse 25. He will speak against the Most High and will oppress the saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to Him for a time, time and a half's time. Who are the saints? Anyone sanctified, set apart for the living God. Time, time and a half time. Oppressed, 
set aside. Has that been happening to you prior to May 21st? On a worldwide scale, is somebody persecuting you, hurting you into ghettos, trying to take away your life and your freedom? But the court will sit and His power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, where at? Under the heaven, will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and the rulers will worship and obey Him. This is the end of the matter. Daniel was prophesying during the Babylonian kingdom, the first kingdom that would rule the whole earth. He told everyone how many kingdoms to expect. Jews could count, friends. They could count. They count exceedingly well. They can count in tenths. They can count in hundreds. They can count in thousands. Jews can count. So when they saw the Babylonians go, when they saw the Medo-Persians go, when they embraced Alexander coming forward and said, you are the third kingdom that was around the earth, this is divine. And he translated for them under his kingdom, his dominion and his rule, the, the gospel of its day, the Older Testament, into a language that the whole world could read. They saw it as divine. Because there was only one more kingdom to come. A terrible kingdom. A kingdom that started at the waist and broke down into two hemispheres. And then, as time went on, lessened in its original purity and strength. It became partly iron, partly clay. It broke out into ten fingers and ten toes. And then there was warfare even among those. How much do your toes look like your waist? Not a lot. But they are connected, are they not? It's interesting to note that rabbinic scholars believe today that we're in the Roman Empire. Muslim scholars today believe that the West is Rome. That's what they call us, by the way. When they killed Daniel Pearl, when they cut off his head, they said that they were waging war against the Romans. That's what they called us. Everybody seems to acknowledge that we must be in the Fourth Empire because there was not a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. There was a fourth. And it was in the time of those kings that the kingdom of God would be set up. And it would fall upon the toes, not the head, the toes. At the end of these kingdoms, what would bring them to an end is the reign of God with His people upon the earth. I don't need somebody in California to tell me the day and the hour that this will happen. I put it in your bulletin, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew. said no one would know that day or hour. But tells us that there are certain signs that cannot be avoided. He is not trying to trick us. I want to read you some things. I'll tell you where they are. You can write them down, but I will not wait for you to get there because I have a lot that I want to share with you. And I promise, I am not lying to you about this. Go home. Study it. Come back. Fight with me. Prove me wrong. I have been doing this for a long time. I was very, very set in my opinions and ways. And I was sincerely wrong. Just like this fellow in California. I believed what I had been taught without exception. I did not go investigate it in the Word. I simply looked at, at eschatological views the way someone looks like a political party. Well, I don't like this and I like that, but you know what? They've got the majority of it right, so I am a 
Independent. No, I'm teasing. Whatever you would like to be. Okay? Libertarian on Monday and, you know, on Super Tuesday you became a Republican. I don't know where your views are on those things. I'm not trying to, to make them dogmatic. I'm telling you that the Word of God was not meant to be a multiple choice question. Listen to the Jewish concept here. Forget for a moment that there... By the way, did you know that Jesus rode on a colt, the foal of a donkey? You know that? Yes. Did you know that it was tethered to something? It was tethered to its mother. This did two things. Number one, Zechariah said that it would be a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, how do you know that if you don't have mama close by? How do you know its age and all of those things from a glance if you don't see mama there? Secondly, you tied a younger animal to an older animal so it would remain steady, so that it could be taught, so that it would learn to walk at a certain pace. I believe that the older donkey is analogous to Israel. That the younger donkey is analogous to this new creation of Jews and Gentiles grafted into one body that you might even call the Israel of God, but that's not my favorite term. And what's happened is we've cut the tether. We've run off wildly in every direction Things that were never taught in all of history in the last century and a half have so dominated the landscape of the church that you can be run out of a church for simply saying what believers for 1830 years said, but now is out of vogue. That is an amazing thing. And nobody seems to understand it. The textbooks of our seminaries say it point blank. I put it in your bulletin. I quoted the source. That is a textbook from Dallas Theological Seminary. And it says point blank, this was never taught in all of church history before 1840. But that's okay. We just want it. Why? Well, because we like it. I like ice cream too. But that doesn't make everything ice cream. Listen to Luke 13. I'm going to read to you verse 28 and verse 30. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves are thrown out. Sounds like a geographical place, doesn't it? With boundaries in and out. People will come from the east, west, north, and south. How do you do that in space, friends? Where is east in space? Nowhere. Where is west? Where is north? Where is south? If we're talking about some other dimension, we're talking about the kingdom of God on earth with geographical boundaries. The boundaries are actually listed in the Bible over and over and over. It's just not important to us because we live in the west. People will come from the east, the west, the north, and the south and will take their place in the feast in the kingdom of God. You have to be able to come from these directions and be there. The Bible says it's a mountain in Israel. Not on a planet, somewhere else. Indeed, there are those who are last and will be first, and those who are first will be last. I'll teach you on that another day. How about Matthew 19? I'm going to read to you 28-30. through 30. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, well, that's an interesting concept. At the renewal of all things. Did you hear that? Renewal of all things. When Michael got born again, he still looked like Michael, didn't he? Jim's not in here? No, other Jim. Still looks very much like Michael. Still talks like Michael. Except he uses different words. Right? 
But he's being renewed day by day by day. He's being renewed so that we call him a new creation. Much the same way that an earth could be called a new earth and a heaven a new heaven because it had been renewed. But Michael is still the same Michael. There will be a renewal of everything on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. A renewal. Well, what happened to it that made it need to be renewed? Sin entered, so sin must be purged. Death followed sin. Death must be purged. This escapist mentality is Hellenistic. The Greeks taught everything tangible is dirty. It is bad. By the way, it's why you bless your food, and many times you'll notice I don't. People think me not pious, not religious, because I don't pray over the food before I eat it. No Jew ever prayed over his food before he ate it. Neither did Jesus. If you see him praying over food, it's because he's multiplying it. They thank God who brought it forth from the earth. They never blessed their food. To bless the food would mean something's inherently dirty, something's wrong with it, and you need to clean it. This was a Greek thought that entered the church in the second century. Hellenistic. Emphasis on the first four letters. <laughs> if it was spiritual, it was good. If it was earthly, it was dirty and bad. This led to the teaching of the Gnostics that said Jesus rose in the Spirit but not in the flesh. Why? Because the flesh was bad but the Spirit was good. This was not taught in Judaism. You know why? God said the earth was good. And on the sixth day, it was very good. There were two different schools of thought. One is dirty, corrupted, conflict. The other is peace. Shalom interrupted. They saw two totally different ideas. One wants to escape the earth. The other wants to renew it. Restore it. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth that the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne. Wow. I thought He was seated on a throne now. Well, He is. But it sounds like there's a throne that will be seated here on the earth. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now those are people, but you know what else they are? Do you know how we get the word Jew? Jew comes from the region of Judea, which is how the Romans said Judah. Because the area where Judah's tribe settled became Judea, and the people there were called Jews. The twelve tribes are twelve geographical divisions of God's promised land where he would set up his kingdom, and he said the land belonged to him and no one else. He called it his land. It's vastly different than the boundaries today, but the twelve tribes were a region as well as a people group. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Then it repeats the same axiom. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Acts 1. I do want you to turn to this one. It's the last one, then I'll move on from this point. Obviously, I am not teaching on seals and bowls of wrath today. We're not weeding through every verse of the apocalypse. Having said that, I am introducing you to a concept that can be demonstrated in Genesis 1, 
demonstrated in every book of the Bible thereafter, and demonstrated in the last chapter of the Bible. This is how I believe proper hermeneutics are done. But I don't want to argue with you. I'm just telling you my heart and why I don't get my shirt in a wad when I hear people proclaiming days and hours. Friends, sometime, look at this from an unbeliever's perspective. I love Bible teachers. I think Hal Lindsey's got a lot to offer the world. I think a lot of teachers do. You know how many of them have done this? And how ridiculous it looks? I want to tell you, you will not be able to turn on Fox News and learn a week in advance of when a rapture will occur. It won't happen. It will be disclosed to the saints of the living God. You will know because your spirit is connected to Him and your eyes will work properly and you will see what Jesus wants you to see. Oh, well, that sounds esoteric. It's as esoteric as the body of Christ is. The body of Christ is an exclusive, called out, sanctified group. Now, what happens if our whole expectation of flying away was never God's plan? What if His plan was to endure and restore and remit? I'll leave that argument for some other day. I think you can probably hint at where I am. By the way, if you're pre-mid or post, let me just vote for none of the above. Okay? None of the above. I'm waiting for the kingdom of God to come upon the earth. And it began in my heart. Acts 1. I want you to hear verse 3. After all of Jesus' ministry, after spending three and a half years with Him, after hearing Him preach and teach, after seeing miracles, doing miracles, traveling to every tribe of Israel, preaching the gospel to every single tribe of Israel, they have but one question for Jesus. Just one. Now let me ask you something. If you could have one question for Jesus, right now He's going to show up, He's going to walk in and say, you know Cody, I wanted to talk to you. You got, you got 30 minutes, one question. What is it? Doesn't that say something about where Cody's heart is? I mean, if Cody says, I always wanted to know who shot JFK. Right? If that's his one question for Jesus, that tells us something about Cody, right? If his question is, did Adam have a belly button? That tells us something about Cody. If he wants to know the truth behind Roswell, that tells us something about Cody, doesn't it? They have one question that they squeeze in right here. And Luke includes it. It's Acts 1, let's start in verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he is alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now you strip away 2,000 years of teaching that this is somewhere else and think of the kingdom of God as a literal kingdom and watch how much sense this makes. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked Him. Here's their one question. They've just heard they could be baptized in God's Holy Spirit. They've been told to stay in Jerusalem, and they get one question. And what is it? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They wanted to know when will what Daniel said come about because we look around and we see Romans. It's the fourth empire. When's it going to happen? And what is Jesus' response? Hmm? 
This is this is not important for you right now. It's not what I want you to think about. I got word for you to do. About times and dates you don't need to know. And what is the church fascinated with? Times and dates. Last day's madness. Why did they not ask him, Lord, at this time will you rapture us away? That was not the Jewish expectation. The Jewish expectation, and they were still Jewish, was that there would be a king, a kingdom. It would rule all over the earth and the nations would stream to it wanting to know the law of the Lord and receive decisions from the Messiah. They call it the Messianic Age. They refer to it as the renewal of all things. Have you never heard these prophecies? We call them millennial prophecies. They simply call them end of days or end times or eschatology. How about this one? Turn to Isaiah. We're running off track here, but you probably needed to hear it. Turn with me to Isaiah. Let's go to verse 6. Let's talk for a minute about how we see the earth. Chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. One of you is there. The rest of you don't care. If I already upset you, let me me be very clear. The first time that Harold Camping said that uh, Jesus would return and uh, named a date, it was 1994. I had been born again about 12 months and I had just bought a sign to put up in my parents' house. I paid $285 for it. It was a, a, a painting that said, Church closed due to rapture. So, uh, was I on that train? Absolutely. Okay? Uh, I didn't know any better. You know? I didn't know any better. I, I want you to hear I'm telling you this so that you're not mad at me if I'm stepping on your toes. And if you are mad at me, well, love me through my ignorance. Okay? I just don't quite get what you get yet. But you might listen because I'm not ignorant in the Word. Y'all in Isaiah 6? Yes. Verse 3. And they were calling, were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The west part of the United States is full of His glory. An angel is crying out, or I should rather say seraphim, are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now let me ask you, is that your worldview? Do you see the whole earth is full of the Lord's glory? Or are you waiting to leave this stinking ball of dirt behind and enter into that celestial promised land in the sky? You know, our reformers talk like that. Of course, they couldn't have a Bible in their own language. They had to fight for that. Hmm? Think about it. The Jews saw the earth as full of God's glory. First made Isaiah 11. They acknowledge that there is a problem. The problem comes right here. This is what the renewal of all things looks like. This is the goal for which the Torah is aiming at. Right here. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. We are describing a man in which God has endowed certain things. The extent of which that would happen was still a mystery. But later in Isaiah he said, actually earlier in Isaiah he said, a virgin would be with child. Isaiah hinted all over and all around it. But it involved a king 
coming to the earth. And listen what would happen. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. Do you remember Jesus said, I don't make judgment, but if I do judge, my judgment's right. Because it came from the Father. I only do what he says to do. I only see what he says to see. I added that, but you understand what I'm saying. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and the little children will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down and together the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of a cobra and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. Does that shock you? Does it hurt a little bit even to think about? Of course it does. Because we have to have a complete and total renewal so that there is no sin for this to even occur. Have you ever looked out and seen these things happening? It's because the kingdom of God is not fully manifest. But you've received His kingdom in your hearts and we're waiting for it to show up in every part of your life, including the natural order. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain for the earth will be full of what? Full of the knowledge of His glory. The glory is on the earth and it always has been. It has enveloped the earth. It was made by the glory of God. The glory has never departed. The earth is not dirty. It is not bad. It is not wicked. Instead, it has the Lord's glory on it. But we can't see it because we are bad, dirty, tainted, wicked. All of those things until you step into Christ and are renewed. The nature of the earth God made was good. He even said, very good. Listen to how different this worldview is. One cannot wait to leave behind what is bad. The other cannot wait to restore to its former glory that which was good. Okay, guys, if you're struggling with this, imagine that we have a 1966 Ford Mustang. Right? It's got a fastback on it. It had a board out 289. It's a new 302 and you're excited about it and your wife looks at it and says it's a pile of junk let's buy a new car but when you look at it you go no it was made glorious and it just needs a little help and it'll be glorious again and you can hear it rumble Amen. you turn over the engine and it says it spits tons of fire out and you cannot wait to ride this white horse into the millennium Okay, friends, I'm being a little silly, but they are two very different views. Now, how is the wife going to treat the pile of rust that is garbage that she just can't wait to get out of her driveway? And how is the husband going to treat it? Do you see why these things are important? The man's focus in California was wrong. He wants to leave behind that which God wants to finish and fix. How responsible do you think he feels to fixing things? Why are people maxing out their credit cards, taking second mortgages on their house, quitting their jobs and driving across the country to fly away? This was never the plan of God. I put it in your bulletin. I wrote it in their own words for you. It never appeared in history before 1840, 1830 something. It became popular 
post-Civil War in the United States. Didn't catch up on in Europe at all till between World War I and World War II. It seems that immediately after devastation like a country has never seen and that has eclipsed the globe, you're primed for a doctrine that says you'll never have to suffer again. Because the Bible clearly says it'll be trouble that was unequaled since the beginning of the world. That means the Holocaust has nothing on what is coming. Would y'all like to hop back on the track here? Yeah. Charlie told me the Bible was full of rabbits. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I think what we'll probably do is go ahead and turn to the book of Joshua. Let's look at the natural conquest of the promised land. Let's look at the ways in which these things occur. Let's see what we can learn from the history of God's people in the past. Because, am I wrong? Don't they teach that when you don't know history, you're condemned to? Well, what if we're blessed to repeat it? Because i got to tell you, there was a promised land. There were a people of God that did encounter opposition. They fought through it in gave of what was promised. Albeit too little and too late too many times. This is a model for us. By the way, why not just rapture them out of Egypt? Did you know that the 13th chapter of Exodus, the 13th chapter, and the 12th chapter, honestly, they will both mention someone being taken? Did you know that? Wow. It's a wicked person. Taken in judgment. You apply that to the Noah scripture in Matthew. Oh, it'll be like the days of the flood. One will be standing in the field, one's taken and the other's left. Yeah, apply a sound biblical hermeneutic to that. What you find is the wicked are taken in judgment. Not the righteous. The righteous inherit the earth. Don't the Psalms say that? The righteous will inherit the earth. Didn't Jesus teach it in Matthew 5? But we decided we don't want the earth. Leave it behind. It's damned anyway. This is not right. This is Greek. By the way, Greek thought didn't permeate the church till after 132 A.D. when there was a split with our Jewish brothers and sisters. Rome was attacking. Actually, it's not quite right. Rome was occupying. Israel was attacking. They wanted their promised land back. They wanted a time like the Maccabean period where they could overthrow the Roman oppressor so that the kingdom of God could come through force. They found a man named Bar Kokhba, son of the star. They proclaimed him Messiah. This put Jewish believers in Jesus in a really awkward position. This happened in 132 AD. See, they believed the Jewish Messiah had already come and they were themselves Jews, still in Jewish families, still accepted among the Jews, albeit a strange group of Jews. And now, all of the patriotic feelings that are going on are supporting a man named Bar Kokhba that claims to be the Messiah. You know what they did? They ran to Petra. They ran out of Jerusalem when the war came, not because they were cowards, but because Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by foreign armies, don't wait, go. That made them to their other Jewish brothers look like Benedict Arnold's and cowards. From that point forward in history, Judaism was distinct from Christianity forever. Never again shall the two meet until this recent revival in our times where people are beginning to understand. Satan drove a wedge. Now we're called sister religions. The truth is there's only one religion of God. Only one. And it's complete in Messiah and incomplete without Him. 
But after that, suddenly, our church fathers were all Greek. There were no more apostles in Jerusalem. And they brought Greek ideas into the body of Christ. These were all of the heresies of the world. Every one of them. All you got to do is read church. Anybody ever heard of of Philip Schaff's History of the Church? I put it in the library. It's eight volumes. I paid for it for you. Read it. Read it. I don't make this stuff up. Not at all. If I tell you that a doctrine has only been around since 1840, don't take my word for it. You go read and see. See if you can find one person in, say, 1,200, 1,300, 1,500, 1,700 that believed that the church was going to fly away. You will not find it. It's not recorded anywhere in all of history. The belief that the church would stand. Even the Catholic Church got this right. That's saying something, friends. I don't have very much wrong. <laughs> I want to talk to you about the Jordan. The Jordan is one of those things that when you see the Washington Monument, right, it, it evokes certain feelings in you. If uh, if you go stood on the rock uh, that Christopher Columbus is supposed to have stood on, it would evoke certain feelings in you. Uh, the Alamo. Come on, now I'm in Texas. The Alamo. I finally found something you'll understand. The Alamo. When you go there, it's supposed to evoke certain feelings. You need to know that the Jordan River begins in Israel, right? Flows right off of Mount Hermon with three tributaries that form it at its headwaters. And it ends in Israel at the Dead Sea. The Jordan River begins and ends in Israel, so it belongs to Israel. It's nearly 200 miles long. Its name is Hey Yarden in, in Hebrew. This means the descender because it is descending from the foothills of Mount Hermon all the way to the lowest place on the surface of the planet in the Dead Sea. At times, it's a mile wide. At other times, it's only 100 feet wide. It's not very impressive. If you've ever seen the Mississippi, this does not strike you like the Mississippi. But if it's at times only 100 feet and at other times a mile, it might make an impression on you when you saw it a mile wide. It's the site of severe judgment in Israel's history. Why is it the site of severe judgment? Because in Numbers 14, they got right up to it, looked on the other side, sent out some spies and said, we can't take what God has given us. We can't go in and beat those guys. It was at the Jordan that they failed. Can you understand that? So the Jordan is a site of judgment. But later on in Israel's history, in Joshua 3, also in Numbers 26, they came back to the Jordan. What did they do that time? They crossed it. So it is both, in Israeli thought, the site of their greatest failure and their greatest... Doesn't that sound a lot like the cross to you? It is the moment when you realize what a disaster your life was at the foot of the cross. Your greatest failure. But it is also your greatest success because it is the moment where you realize how to get victory. The Jordan River is very much like coming to the cross. Okay, It is not the cross. I'm not teaching that it is. Those of you that have a fault finding, none of you do. Someone listening out on the internet, please, I didn't say that it is the cross. What I'm teaching you is that the very geography of Israel teaches us about Jesus, teaches us about what to expect. It begins in Israel just like judgment. Romans 1, 16 says that, that uh, the gospel is for Israel. The direction that they crossed it, this is an important one. The direction that Israel crossed the Jordan was always one direction. It's not what you would think. 
How do, how do we read? We read from left to right. Doesn't it seem weird to read from right to left? Doesn't that seem backwards? Except we are the backwards ones. When you think of crossing the Jordan and you try to picture Israel in your mind, for most of us, for whatever reason, we picture being on the west side and crossing to the east side. I don't know why. They always crossed it from east to west. Where is Jesus appearing skywise? He said, look to the east. The gospel is traveling the globe, going around from the western countries back around. Today is moving in China, Africa, India. It is approaching Jerusalem from east to west. And it will cross the Jordan from east to west until we arrive at the Mount of Olives and we see with our own eyes our Messiah. The Jordan teaches us much about the coming of Christ. But you have to know something about the Jordan. You have to care. You have to want to read the Word. You have to know Israel's geography. Good thing that the people that gave us this book did. Uh, I was going to read to you Numbers 14, but suffice it to say, they refused to cross over. Right? And those words are listed. What was the cost of refusing to cross over? Joshua and Caleb are the only survivors. All of Israel died. It took 38 years to kill them all. Every man who was 20 years old or older at the time of the first arrival at the Jordan was held accountable for not crossing over, for not doing what God said. What does that tell you? That tells you that the old man must die for you to enter the kingdom. That there is only one way to enter the kingdom. Do you know that when Israel gets to the Jordan the next time, in Joshua 3 and Numbers 26, not a single person was there who had failed to cross the first time. What does that tell you about our God? But there was also not a single person there that had seen the plagues on Egypt with their own eyes. He brought people away they had never been. People who had never seen His glory. Never seen those things and said, I don't need to prove myself. I want you to trust me. And then told them to do it. How about that? Wouldn't you think it'd be easier for the first group to cross? There are 1,870 less people the second time too. Apparently only a remnant are going to be saved. Apparently God does not need a mass embrace of His plan. He doesn't need people that have great experiences in Him. He simply needs someone who is obedient. Turn with me to Exodus 30. Let's do that. That'd be a good place to kick off what's on my mind. Are y'all still with me or are you, yeah. you floating? Oh my goodness, Eric, you're running in every direction. If you think about it this way, the kingdom of God is literal that's coming upon the earth. It is in the presence of God now and it is coming this way and the proof of that is He established it in your heart. Yes. Now what we're doing is we're looking at the way in which He established a geopolitical entity that would be a forerunner to the kingdom of God. The way in which when He designed a nation and set up its boundaries, He did it that time will tell us something about the attitude and the manner in which He does it the next time. So are you in Exodus 30? Yes. In Exodus 30, let us start with verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord's ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come upon them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 gerahs. The half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over 
Those 20 years old or more are to give an offering to the Lord. He goes on to say the rich don't give more, the poor don't give less. There is one cost for salvation. And what did they call it? Crossing over. So when we get to the Jordan, crossing over has special symbolism. Every person had already crossed over. They had already been counted as an Israelite and brought into life. And now they are facing a physical boundary that they also must cross over to continue in what God has already given them. Is that not a picture of, of our daily walk? How many of you have been credited with salvation? Wow, I hope for a better success rate. How many of you have been credited with salvation? Don't be scared. That credit is dependent upon you doing what He tells you to do. This is what displays your trust. This is what faith is. So, well, Eric, if I made a mistake one time, does that disqualify me? No, the only thing that would disqualify you is not trusting Him and not following. But Israel had a census taken, a price paid, they became sons of God, just like us. But when they got to the Jordan and wouldn't cross, what did they do then? They let them die in the desert. They did not inherit what was promised. Now put that in your theology. How about this then? So if you cross over the Jordan, it was analogous to being saved, like the cross. What does it mean then in John 5, 21-24, when Jesus says, anybody who comes to me has crossed over from death to life. The time is coming and has now come when those who hear uh, the Word of God will rise from the grave. What do you think that meant to a Jewish people group? It meant this is no different than us facing the Jordan and needing to cross over. This is no different than being in a census and not it being included in Israel if we don't do it. In other words, not optional, right? Obedience was never optional in the Gospel. There is no such thing as a Gospel of grace that eliminates the need for obedience. If you are not obedient, you are not a son of God. How do you reconcile that with the fact that you sin? When you do sin, it's no longer you. It's sin working in you. It's an enemy. It's something that's being counted as dead. It does not control you. It doesn't define you. Unless, of course, it does. Yeah, but there's no middle ground. You've either crossed over or you haven't crossed over. Let's go to John 3 and look at what happened. Not John. Joshua, when they crossed. Tell me when you're there. I'll need you there for this. Would you say that crossing over was probably the most important thing you could do, whether it was a census or the river? Because it was a sign of obedience. It was a chance for you to be included with the people of God. Well, what would be necessary to cross over then? Would it be to leave some old stinking thing behind? Or might it require you to persevere and build character and hope? Might it require you to actually show trust in God? So that it could be said of people who didn't, the love of most will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Joshua 3, look at verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all of the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. Well, that's a good message when you think about it. Have you crossed over or are you still deliberate? Oh no, Eric, when I was eight years old, I crossed over. I accepted Jesus as Lord. Really? All of your life is in here since that moment? You can cross over in thought and not do it in your actual body. Not in your life, but that would not be salvation, would it? 
What if the Israelites stood on the edge and said, I believe we can cross over. I believe we should cross over. I think that it's the right thing to do to cross over. But then they didn't cross over. Well, then they die in the desert. Are you are you reading between those lines, friends? Are, are you getting that? Amen. You can say you crossed over. You can, you can have a big bumper sticker that says, I've crossed over. But if you haven't crossed over, then you haven't. Early in the morning, Joshua and all of the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After how many days? Three. That's an amazing number, isn't it? That the Jordan, which is analogous to the cross, which is analogous to the census, had a three-day deliberation period. How about that? After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Follow it. Well, what if you didn't want to follow it? What if you saw a better way? What if you saw an easier path? What if somebody told you, no, you don't really have to follow it. What you should do is go around and go this way. It's still crossing over. If you are a child of God, you must be following the ark of God. Period. There is only one way to cross. You cannot do it in your own strength. You can't do it in and of your own decision. In fact, the ark must go first and you must be following it. This is why Jesus said in John 6.44, You cannot be saved unless the Spirit of the Father draw you. That means none of you came to the cross of your own accord. You came because He was drawing you. And you got there and had a moment of deliberation where you could either follow or not follow. Did you just follow Him to the cross or are you following Him now? Amen. What good would it be to go to the other side and then not do anything that He said? After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know the way. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. Why did God take them away? They had never been before. It was the best way to find out if they trusted Him. Let me ask you: Where is His presence leading you now? In the well-trodden, very safe, well-established route that you've historically taken always never deviated from or is there something bold something daring something risky about where he's leading you at because one shows trust and the other is devoid of it and without trust it is impossible to please the lord read uh, hebrews eleven six. you need to believe that he exists with you in your situation and he rewards those who follow him that's what faith is are we tracking together? Yes. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things among you. What precedes amazing things? Consecration. We are going from meeting to meeting, looking for miracle after miracle, saying, Lord... Why are there not miracles here like there are in India? Well, to start with, we invented new ways to sin that the third world has never even found out about. Wow. 
We'll build eight-story buildings dedicated to killing our unborn children in this country. They've never even conceived to such a thing. In some countries, they might kill your kids to protect theirs. But they would never kill No problem with it. To us, it's just a political decision. Secondly, how consecrated are we? How often have you set aside even one day in a week? I said, Lord, I'm not going to do anything except think about you because I need your direction. Not just for my life, but for this week. We have no concept of a Sabbath. And I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, and I'm not trying to change your day of worship. I'm not trying to put you under a ritual or the Mosaic Law or anything else. I'm telling you that the principle by which these people were guided wrote the Word. It came out of a culture, a rich milieu of Jewish thought. And they were used to seeking the Lord. And every week it was not optional. You did it because your life depended upon it. So when they consecrated themselves, do you think they consecrated themselves? And then they got to see amazing things. How many of you want to see amazing things? It starts with consecration. The kind of consecration that will cause you to deliver it, to go against the grain from everybody that you have known and what they're telling you, and go to a place where you feel like the Lord has left you. Amen. If your faith has never caused you to go against the grain, you probably don't possess it. Or it's still such seedling that it needs to grow to the place where you could stand there. In the beginning, you want to nurture a child. He's really devoid of his own decisions. You parents who give two-year-olds all kind of opinions, you're sorely misdirected. That two-year-old needs to learn your opinion and your opinion only. When they get a little older, then you start to allow them to be shaped by reasoning. Our faith starts the same way. In the beginning, you have no opinion. You just follow. You learn. You learn from the people that are around you. But at some point, you're responsible for growing up in your faith to hear your Father's voice and do what He says independent of everyone else. For a Jew, they believe that began around 13 years old. Apparently, we often think it begins before your third birthday. I was in Willie's the other day trying to eat dinner with a couple. And there was a mother reasoning with her two-year-old who was throwing sand and all kinds of... Is that the best decision that you could make, honey? Really? This is what you're asking a three-year-old. Based on your vast experience of being a sentient, speaking, living being for all of... Well, he hadn't even spoke for three years. We're going to ask this child if this is the best decision you could make. I would suggest that you should walk over and give him some laying on of hands that would change his <laughs> And when he's 13, ask him about the quality of his decisions. Laying that argument aside, because that's a big one. In our faith, we do grow up to a place where we have to make our own decisions. Accepting the status quo is no longer okay. Some of you have crossed over that. You know what it feels like? It's scary. Because what if you're wrong? But that's what faith is. Faith steps out into the water while it's still there and hopes that it's dry. Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went on ahead. You cannot be ahead of God's presence. You feel like God called you to be a worship leader. You feel like God called you to be a pastor. You feel like God called you to be a mother, a father, a grandfather, a business owner. You must be in step with God's Spirit. 
doing the thing that he told you to do at a time he did not tell you to do it is tantamount to disobedience. They crossed every obstacle as led by the presence of God, following him at the distance prescribed by him. Think about that. To be at a certain pace, if I'm following Matthew, I have to be running at the same pace as him. God was on the move and they had to keep pace with him. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of Israel. Why not the day before? Why not be exalted for his degree? Why not be exalted for his speaking ability? Why not be exalted because he was a handsome man? What exalts you among the people of God is obedience in the face of adversity. Amen. Amen. Obedience is never tested as long as it's what you want to do. Obedience is not tested when it's easy to do. Obedience is tested when it is difficult, when it costs you something, preferably your life. This might cost them their lives. Do you remember when Brother Zeke preached it was not about you? Yes. Ruth, um, Hadassah, Esther, had to come to the place where she said, if I perish, I perish. Because it was never about her. It was about obedience to God. When we are thinking about the age to come, that kingdom to come, how do we cross over? All of these things apply. You must stay in pace with Him. It must cost you something. In other words, He has to be Lord leading you. You cannot be leading Him. It comes through consecration, knowing His will. This is what else has to happen. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. You don't get to get sucked up into the air and dropped on the other side. You don't get to walk on top of the water across it. You don't get to tunnel under it and smuggle guns into another country. I'm going to keep easing. You have to go stand in the middle of that thing which either brings your judgment or salvation. Are you hearing me? Can you, can you hear the day of the Lord in this? Yes. Judgment and salvation? You go plunge into it and doing everything to stand, you stand your ground. And he who stands firm till the end will be saved. How do we know who the children of God are and who are? They'll love their brothers under extreme circumstances. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that your living God is among you and that He will certainly drive out all of the ites. Verse 11. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Our God puts Himself between us and danger. He precedes us so that when we're following Him, we have not gone anywhere that He didn't destine for us. And He has shown us the way. How did they get out of Egypt? Anybody fly away? Get out of Egypt? They had to follow the presence of God right through the judgment waters that Paul called baptism. You see how everything in the Bible begins to tie together as one unified experience? Now then, choose 12 men. Because they're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Now then, choose twelve men. Do you remember that Jesus told his apostles? Because you have stood by me in my trials, I will confer upon you a kingdom, just as one was conferred upon me. Think about that here. Now then, choose twelve men from among the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. As soon as the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. That which would bring your death, your judgment, will stop for you, and it will be the moment of your salvation, standing in the middle of death, but being alive. Just like being in Egypt, surrounded by darkness, being surrounded by ten plagues, but it not harming you. Because God has made a distinction between those who are His <coughs> and those who are not. Mm. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Not a hundred feet wide. It's a mile is it any surprise that at the moment of their crossing, it was bigger than it had ever been before? God wouldn't call them to do it at any other time. Because He gets glory through what His people endure. And where there is no suffering, hear me, there is no glory. So why are we looking to leave all of these situations behind and fly away? This is where God's glory comes. Do you admire an Israelite who never faced this situation? Or do you admire the one that was standing there looking at the river, looking at the water, going, I love you, Lord. Amen. Come on now. Do we have some feet to our faith? Or is it all intellectual ascent? Is it all escapism? Is it all Hellenistic ascension? I believe that our faith must be backed up in our actions and that God will prove it to the entire world and that it's not a beating of a bride. It's her very purification. It's her glory. It's like a wedding. If you don't believe me, why do you love Paul? Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carry the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water was flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite of Jericho. Jericho would forever symbolize the rule of the world, much like four beasts would symbolize four kingdoms. But the people of God would take Jericho and it wouldn't be through their supernatural uh, zeal. It would be through their obedience to the Word of God. In fact, it would not require them to lift a sword just to do what God said. You remember that a man was heading from Jerusalem down to Jericho? It's down because Jerusalem's elevated and Jericho's not. And it's down because the spiritual direction is down. He was on the right road headed the wrong direction. All of the Bible pits Jerusalem against Jericho. The kingdom of the world versus the city of God. So what story in all of the Bible represents the people taking the kingdom of the world and making it the kingdom of God? If it is not the fall of Jericho, I don't know what is. Did it happen through their, their military might? 
What did it require them to do? Follow their priest. How many days? They followed the priest six days. And each of the six days, a priest took the authority of the king of the sheep, a horn is authority in the Bible, and he filled it with the spirit God gave him. The authority of the sheep and the spirit of God rang out a loud sound. It was the only sound. No war cry, no clanging of armor, no military threats. Only the Spirit of God working through the authority of the King of the Sheep. They did this once a day for six days. At the end of the sixth day, the beginning of the seventh, it intensified seven times. How many bubbles of wrath? How many seals? How many, how many, how many? Seven times. And then the kingdom of the world fell and gave way to the kingdom of God. A literal, physical kingdom. And Joshua said this will never be rebuilt again unless it's at the cost of the firstborn son. And that's a whole other message. But the story has been repeating over and over and over again. It's just not taught on family radio. It was common Jewish knowledge, which is why they asked him the question. At that time, are you going to restore the kingdom? Now let me ask you, has that ever even been in your perspective? Have you ever even considered that? Are we just waiting to die and go to heaven? Are we just waiting to be raptured? Our job is to march around this world system saying only what He said to say. Using only the authority of the King of the Sheep. Filled only by His Spirit. Knowing that it will collapse right when God said it was. By the way, uh, Peter... Uh, quoted David. said a day is as a thousand years. How about that? What year were we in? 57? 71. No, Jesus is not going to return tomorrow. Can you read between those lines? An antichrist will actually try to change set times and dates and seasons. Why were the sun, the moon, and the stars instituted? Anybody remember? It's day four. Why were they instituted? To keep track of the seasons. What an interesting problem that is. Is there a temple in Jerusalem today? But an antichrist must sit in that temple and proclaim himself God. Hmm. No, Jesus is not going to return May 21st or May 22nd or October 21st because you have not seen the things that the Bible clearly says must happen. happen. What you have seen is a bunch of people influenced by Hellenistic thought and a doctrine that is not 200 years old yet, the alarmist attitudes and a to hell with this world, we're getting out of here attitude. And it has been so pervasive in the church that it's common knowledge to us and anybody who says otherwise is somehow liberal. No, friends, I'm not liberal. I am in the mainstream orthodox of the Christian faith for better than a millennia or two or three millennia. It's just not common today. I wonder what would cause an apostasy of most if it was not wrong expectations about his coming. Why did the people not receive Jesus at his first coming? Anybody know? They had a wrong expectation. 
Do you think it will really be different at his second coming? Listen, I didn't as much want to teach you eschatology as I wanted to teach you that no matter what happens, if God causes you to cross a river, it'll be at flood stage. There's one more thing that they did. It's in the fourth chapter, the first, second, or third verse. They were to take stones from that river. They set them up. They'd be memorial stones. And when their children asked, what is the meaning of these stones? They would tell them what real faith was. And the children would learn to imitate. If you don't go through trials, if you don't have real self-sacrifice, life-dependent issues, you have no memorial stones. You only have creeds and doctrines. I got a few stones in my bag. And I pray to God that you endure and get some as well. Because this is how people learn what faith is. Amen. Amen. It's a whole different picture of what David took out and killed the giant, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Stones in his back. Amen. Stand up and let's pray. You know what? I didn't preach most of what I was going to preach. I hope you got something out of it. If you have questions about these things, or if any one of you would like to organize a Bible study at your house, Say, you know what? We want to know more about this. Would you teach us the book of Revelation? Daniel, Ezekiel, First and Second Thessalonians, any of those things? I'll do it. We just got to find a day to do it. I'll do it for any of you. I don't often do this on a Sunday morning because if you have a mother struggling through a divorce, I don't think that the bowls of wrath are what's going to feed her. You've got people facing extreme medical situations. I don't want to sit and argue with somebody about when a seal was opened. Having said that, People of God need to know what to expect if we're going to set our hope on something. Jesus has not come if there is no lamb laying down with a lion, friends. You didn't miss it. <laughs> you didn't miss it. How strange. Don't you think that this is strange? Am I the only one that thinks that it's strange that people could even believe these things? I find it remarkable that somebody can spend a hundred million dollars on it. And you can have the truth and be in a storefront church and struggle to raise 14 to build it out. I find it remarkable. Having said that, it's always at flood stage. That's how God does things. Pray for us, Matthew. Mighty God, we thank you for your living word. It is able to divide soul and spirit and judge the attitudes and thoughts of our heart. Lord, I pray that we take this, we chew on it, we apply it to ourselves so we're able to properly discern your will and destiny for our lives. We love you, mighty God. We thank you for being resurrected in us. Amen. 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 There were six senses in Israel's history, but there'll be a seventh. Is that a separation of sheep and goats?